Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, as Jesus continues his sermon, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In the last chapter, Jesus gave us models for giving, for praying, for fasting, for money and trust. Now Jesus is going to turn our attention to the subject of judging. He is going to ask us to ask God for what we need. He's going to give us instructions on how to treat others. He's going to give us instructions on how to live as true children of our Heavenly Father. In brief, Jesus will speak Of our responsibilities to the saved in verses 1 and 2. To ourselves in verses 3 through 5. To the ungodly in verse 6. In short, Jesus is going to say, don't judge in verse 1. Judge in verses 3 through 5. Exercise good judgment in verse 6. It all sounds pretty confusing. Well, which is it? Don't judge, judge, exercise good judgment. As you read these words, it can be very, very difficult to sort things out. Does the Bible forbid all judgment? Well, the answer is no. Certain judgments are forbidden. Certain judgments are commanded. Well, how do we determine those judgments which are forbidden and those judgments which are commanded? On what basis do we judge in verse 2? Well, we judge knowing the truth about God in verses 1 and 2. We judge knowing the truth about ourselves in verses 3 through 5. We judge with care and good judgment. Look what it says in verse 1 again. Judge not that you be not judged. The Greek word translated judge and the root word for judgment in the first verse are similar. It's the word crino and diacrino. Crino is a word that has a number of different meanings depending on the context. Crino is a word that can mean to divide or to separate. In the ancient world, it meant to cut in two. Hence, it came to mean to discern. One meaning of the word is to pronounce judicial judgment or to make a judicial pronouncement of guilt or condemnation. Some read these words of Jesus and conclude, wow, we should never judge. Yet Jesus elsewhere says, judge a righteous judgment in John 7, 24. Jesus says in in Luke 7, 43, you have rightly judged. Later in the chapter, Jesus will say in verse 15, beware of false prophets. Why would Jesus tell you to beware of false prophets and give you no standard or measure in order to determine what is true or what is false? 
The clue is given to us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 20, where the prophet Isaiah said, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The book of Isaiah says, how are we going to make an accurate ability to determine what exactly is being said? So what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that you be not judged? In order to answer that question, again, we have to look at the scriptures like it says in Isaiah. We have to look at the heart of God and the testimony of God and the revelation of God. It can't mean forbid all judgment or else you wouldn't be able to make a judgment about right and wrong, good and evil. And so whatever else it means, it seems to mean that human beings possess an almost indescribable and inexhaustible capacity for self-deception and judgmentalism. You see, what Jesus is basically talking about is a judgmental attitude. Throughout this book and this sermon, Jesus has been contrasting the things that go on on the outside and what's going on on the inside. And so what Jesus is basically talking about is that we're not to embrace a judgmental attitude. John Corson thinks it means the kind of judgment that makes you look good at other people's expense. He writes, it's when you're in somebody's face, so to speak, pointing your finger at them and condemning them. We're not to judge for condemnation, but we are to judge for identification, unquote. Well, what does John Corson mean by that? We judge to identify sin. For what purpose? To effect restoration. Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor, which means cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong, and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what in the world is, again, Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is, if you're a Christian... And you say to another person, I don't think you're saved. Or you draw a conclusion, I don't think you're saved. The truth is you might be right, but the truth is you might be wrong. You know, the Bible says he's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly. And to love mercy. And to walk in humility with your God. You see the scripture doesn't separate justice, mercy, and humility. The Bible seems to indicate that we have to find a place for justice in our heart. And mercy in our heart. And humility in our heart. The Lord condemns the kind of judgment that is absent mercy, absent compassion. He's condemning the kind of judgment where you distance yourself from compassion and mercy. So what kind of judgment does the Bible forbid? We cannot judge a person's internal spiritual condition as much as we'd like to. This is a powerful temptation it is a wicked and perverse temptation. There's something inside of us that draws us to want to draw judgments about people that we're not qualified to make. And so the Bible forbids hypocritical judgments. No one appreciates being harshly criticized or condemned for drinking when you're a drunk. 
or drugging by an addict or sexual immorality by a prostitute. Robert Bowman writes, and I quote, what makes this sort of criticism unacceptable is not merely that the person making the accusation is also guilty. Rather, what makes it offensive is that the hypocrite claims or pretends to be guiltless. The hypocrite pretends to be righteous when he or she isn't. On the other hand, when someone says, you and I are both guilty of this and we need to do better, that's not hypocritical. To put it another way, hypocritical judgments are not bad because they're false. They may or may not be. They're bad only in that they're spoken hypocritically. So when a former famous president says, I did not have (laughs) sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Remember he said, I want you to know and I want the American people to know that I denied having relations with that woman. And now I'm ready to deny it all over again. You see, if a person says to you, I think you should be faithful to your wife. (laughs) (laughs) The statement remains true. Hypocrites who judge others will have to face judgment themselves. And the point that Jesus is making is they ought to deal with their own sin first. Robert Bowman goes on and he points out that Jesus himself observed the hypocritical Pharisees often. And he would say, guess what? What they're saying is true and what they're saying is right. He says, when what they say is true and what they say is right, obey them. But the tragedy is they were unable to follow their own good advice. Can we reject all judgments by other people simply on the grounds that no one is perfect? We might try, but we will always fail. Because the truth, every single person believes something. We believe certain things. And since we believe certain things to be true, we must of necessity believe that certain things are false. And the moment that you say something is true and its opposite is false, you've rendered a judgment. And so the Bible doesn't condemn judgment. It condemns hypocritical judgment. And it condemns unjust judgment. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Once again, the issue isn't whether or not to judge, but how to judge. What kind of judgment is Jesus forbidding when he says, do not judge according to appearance? He's judging a superficial judgment or looking on the outside and ignoring the inside. He's condemning surface judgment, judgment without the facts or incomplete facts. And once again, Jesus isn't forbidding evaluating external facts, but rather drawing a conclusion based on what we think may or may not be inside of a person's heart. And the moment that you conclude that you know what's inside of a person's heart, you're You've gone too far because you're pretending to know something that you can't possibly know. Are you able to peer into a person's heart or into their soul? And the contrast is between the external facts and the internal motivations or intuitions. Jesus is warning against condemning superficial judgment Jesus is warning against hypocritical judgment and so if the judgment is hypocritical it still may or may not be true if the judgment is superficial it still may or may not be true 
The Bible forbids hypocritical judgment, superficial judgment, unjust judgment, and presumptuous judgment. What's a presumptuous judgment? These are judgments which human beings are simply not competent to make. It means speaking to an area or an issue that you're not qualified to speak on. Are you truly able to render a verdict on the question of whether or not a person is saved or not saved? The Bible gives a great deal of information on how a person is saved. The Bible gives a great deal of information on assurance of salvation. This is the testimony John writes in 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son does not have life. How do you know who has and who hasn't the son? You know, there are certain things that remain in the sole province of God. There are certain things that lie deep in the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. And remember what I've already told you, that each and every one of us are capable of profound self-deception. There are certain things that remain available only to God, So who has the ultimate authority on the issues of eternal life and death? Who will render the ultimate judgment about our destiny? Jesus is basically will make the point and will continue to make the point that only he is capable of rendering that kind of judgment. Jesus will later say all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you should go, oh, thank you. God that Jesus has all authority and it's up to Jesus to determine who's right and who's wrong and what's right and what's wrong for that reason it seems foolish to set ourselves up as the final authority or the ultimate lawgiver are there other presumptuous judgments yes these are proclamations that we make absent competence but there seems to be another kind of presumptuous judgment It's the one we make absent compassion, absent mercy. When I decided that I was going to be a Bible teacher, I set myself up to be served up as roast preacher every single Sunday. I absolutely positively know that there are people who are listening to me right at this very moment and they're evaluating everything that I say. And guess what? I'm not above criticism. You should evaluate what I say. Every single thing that I say. In light of God's word. In light of the revelation of God. Do we sometimes make non-essential issues the basis of friendship or fellowship or relationship? You might think, preacher, I don't like the way you dress. Well, blame my wife. I wear the pants in the family and every Sunday she puts out the pair that I'm supposed to wear. Paul warns about making non-essential issues the basis of fellowship. Festivals and Sabbath observances, dietary restrictions, and all kinds of other things. We simply don't have the ability to peer into a person's heart and judge their motives, yet we must be willing to examine our own motives. Jesus forbids the judgmental attitude, and the judgmental attitude is the attitude that fails To embrace love and compassion and mercy. The judgmental attitude says, give me the facts. And it's okay to want the facts. And and says, and I want to render justice. It's okay to want facts and justice. But if you want facts and justice, but no mercy and no compassion, almost certainly you're headed down a path that will lead to judgmentalism. 
No wonder Jesus says in verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Now, this could mean several different things. But what if it means exactly what it seems to say in its context? When it says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. If you make the choice to judge superficially, if you make the choice to judge hypocritically, if you make the choice to judge presumptuously, doesn't it seem to indicate to you you, that other people may judge you presumptuously, hypocritically, and superficially? Is that the basis that you want to be judged? Hey, please judge me just based on the worst thing that I've ever done on the worst day of my life. Just pause for just a moment and ask yourself this question. What if everyone in this room, everyone, got to see just a brief moment, just a brief video of you doing the worst thing that you've ever done and saying the worst thing that you've ever said and now all of us will evaluate you based on the worst thing that you ever said and the worst thing that you ever did. How would you feel about that? Would you feel honored? (laughs) You see, the truth is If each and every one of us get judged based on the worst thing that we've ever said and the worst thing that we've ever did, then no one is ever, ever going to show up to church ever again. So whatever this measure means, whatever this standard means, it is a measure and it is a standard for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Apparently, there is a measure. Apparently, there is a standard that exists. Isaiah, by the way, lists two of those standards. He says, the law and the testimony. We judge by God's word and we judge by God's testimony. Not some fallible human standard of emotion or twisted reason. The measure that Jesus refers to, it seems to be a measuring cup or a measuring instrument. The standard you adopt will be used to judge you. Unrighteous judgment invites unrighteous judgment. A judgment based solely on justice will invite a judgment based solely on justice. And is this absolute? I'm going to suggest to you probably not. Because if you say, you know what, I'm not going to judge anyone about anything. I'm not going to have any standard. Whatever anyone does and whatever they do it, I don't care because that's the standard I want God to apply to me. By the way, If you decide to just ignore right and wrong and good and evil, do you think God will ignore right and wrong and good and evil? Yeah, I think the answer is no. We all believe in justice. The Bible says, do not pervert justice in Leviticus 19.15. The ancient Roman lawyers would quote Publius Sirius, who would say, quote, He who hurts the good spares the bad. The unbeliever, the make-believer, the person who has no biblical basis whatsoever has at least some concept that there is such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. Martin Luther King wisely said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. People have thoughts and ideas about truth. And they have thoughts and ideas about justice. So what tools or what instruments or what measurements will you use? Will truth be a measuring stick? Will justice be a measuring stick? Many rabbis in Jesus' day believe God used two measures. Mercy and justice. A judge has to know the law. And a judge can't plead ignorance of the law. And Jesus is basically reminding us. Will you insist on justice for others? 
and mercy for yourself. I want justice for that man. And what do you want for yourself? Mercy. Okay. By the way, like I said, the issue isn't whether or not justice and mercy are antithetical or separated. The issue becomes how do we as Christians incorporate truth, incorporate justice, and incorporate mercy in our thinking. D.A. Carson writes, quote, Judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. And so the invitation that we make to one another is, I'm not asking you to be blind about my faults. I'm asking you to be generous in spite of my faults. So what about the person who decides that the measure that they're going to use is hypocrisy, superficiality, and incompetence? Well, guess what? If hypocrisy and superficiality and incompetence become the measures that you decide to exercise, guess what? You might find yourself in deep, hot water. And so Jesus uses an illustration. We judge knowing the truth about ourselves. And so when Jesus says in verses 3 and 4, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We've heard this statement made so often that sometimes we, we lose its power when it was first given by Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus is making a joke. He's going for the laugh. I get comforted when I read this passage because when I read Jesus going for the laugh, I'm fairly certain that when Jesus made this statement, people started howling. They started laughing. And they laughed out loud. And I'm going to suggest to you that maybe some of them began to laugh so long and so hard that tears started to form in their eyes. Have you ever laughed so hard and so long that, that just all of a sudden water starts coming into your eyes and you start tearing up over? Because it's just you can't make those tears go away. And Jesus is making that absurd hyperbole. Those salty tears of laughter must have cleared at least a few people's vision. When Jesus says about the speck and the plank, he's suggesting that it makes perfect sense that we're allowed to help each other. Hey, brother, I just want to help you out of that miserable, stinking sin you're in. Thanks. But how ridiculous. How ridiculous is it to offer to remove a speck of dust from someone's eye when you're walking around with this gigantic beam sticking out of your own eye? This is the point that Jesus is making. It's hypocrisy. The moat or the speck and the plank or the beam are probably made of the same substance. Wood. The reason why I even bring it up is because sin somehow looks a lot larger when it's being worn by somebody else. Somehow, it all looks so wicked. It looks so evil when somebody else is doing it. And it looks so small and insignificant when we're doing it. But the point that Jesus is making, I'm going to suggest to you, doesn't preclude the fact that he knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows the gigantic capacity that we have in order to judge superficially and hypocritically and, super, and, and presumptuously. Others' sin seems so large. 
our sin seems so small. And someone has once pointed out that we seem to focus on the sins in other people's lives that look the most like our own. You see, the thing that probably annoys you more than anything else is the thing that annoys you about yourself. So Jesus gives us instructions. How do we judge others honestly and ourselves dishonestly? And so he'll say, I'm going to help you. First, take the plank from your own eye. Question. Do you think a plank is large or small? Yeah, do you think you need a, like a little... Do you need a magnifying glass to find the plank? No, it's fairly obvious. It's so large that it is unavoidable. It probably won't require a spiritual magnifying glass. It's obvious. So Jesus is basically saying, in humility, recognize your own sin. We confess our own sin. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, we mourn over our sin. We seek God's righteousness. The the speck that Jesus is talking about, karphos, it isn't what you might think, like a little tiny bit of ash or a speck of sand. It it, it actually is something like a twig or a splinter or a piece of sawdust. Jesus isn't simply comparing a little sin with a big sin. Jesus is comparing a big sin with an outrageously big sin. So if you read the text and you draw the conclusion that, well, you know, their sin is little and my sin is big. No, my sin is huge. Huge and and sin is large. The ultimate point that Jesus is making is that the critic's sin is greater than the criticized. The other point that he seems to be making is that self-righteousness distorts our vision. It makes it hard to see. The curse of judgmentalism renders us blind. The very essence of self-righteousness is this need to justify ourselves at the expense of others. It isn't just simply the condemnation of others. It's the elevation of self. And this is unbelief and trusting yourself and trusting that you become the sole arbiter of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil, and what is true, and what is false. And so self-righteousness makes us the judge, and the jury, and the executioner. And that's what Jesus is trying to avoid. God's the only righteous judge. He's the only one with all the facts. He's the only one who can render an adequate disposition. And so the self-righteous fall into, into the trap of neglecting or ignoring or failing to see their own sin. And with that self-deception is a refusal to appropriate God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness for their own lives. In other words, it isn't just the self-deception that becomes the problem. It is in the self-deception that you find no need for grace for yourself, no mercy for yourself, no forgiveness for yourself. This is why the self-righteous person can never, ever, ever be anything other than a hypocrite, other than superficial. And that's also why he feels qualified to say to his brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. Let me set you straight, brother. Now think about what we've just said. There seems to be a right judgment and there seems to be a wrong judgment. 
And now Jesus will actually encourage judgment. Look what it says in verse 6. We judge with care and good judgment. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Let them trample under their feet, lest they trample you under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Notice the progression. Don't judge. Judge yourself if you have to judge. And then exercise good judgment. Jesus is in effect saying, can you tell the dogs and the hogs from the rest of the animals in the zoo? Are you able to make the judgment? Remember, in the Jewish culture and society, dogs were unclean and hogs aren't kosher by any stretch of the imagination. Certain spiritual things have to be distributed with care. And so when Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, let me ask you a question. Has he made a judgment that some things are holy? Some things are valuable. Some things are sacred. Yeah. Dogs are scavengers. Pigs are greedy and vicious and filthy. Jews don't domesticate dogs, though some scholars dispute this. Some scholars suggest that even some Jews had like dogs to help them watch sheep by night. But no self-respecting Jew would domesticate a pig. According to the law of Moses, both dogs and pigs are unclean animals. Here, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is using this illustration to represent wicked people. And because he's using it to represent wicked people, he's suggesting that there is such a thing as wicked people. In the early church, this text was often quoted before communion. In the early church, when people would gather and they would, they would experience the Lord's table, the, the person who was presiding would say, holy things for holy people. And then they would read this passage that I've just read to you. Some people may visit you at your doorstep and solicit you to abandon the gospel of Jesus. They might invite you to consider another gospel which isn't really the gospel or another Christ which isn't really the Lord. We can and should share the gospel and witness to those who are trapped in cults. But sometimes we run the risk of casting our pearls before swine. We're giving sacred things to those who can't receive them. And that seems to be the point that Jesus is saying. That you have to have discernment. Because you've been entrusted with sacred things. And the world falls largely into two categories. Those that can receive these sacred things. And those who cannot receive what is sacred. And by the way, the word word pearl is a very interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word margaritis. We get the word margarita from it. Not the kind you sip that's made of tequila. We're talking margarita the name or marguerite or margaret. The name Irene? Peace. The name Karis? Joy. The name Marguerite? Pearl. These were three of the most favorite names in the early church that moms would name their children. Our pearls are the things that are pure. They're the things that are holy. They're the things that are true. And so you're a guardian of what is holy and what is pure and what is true. But does everyone accept or embrace purity, truth, And holiness, the answer is no. William Barclay writes, it's often impossible to talk to some people about Jesus Christ. 
Their insensitiveness, their moral blindness, their intellectual pride, their cynical mockery, the tarnishing film make them impervious to the words about Christ. But it's always possible to show men Christ. And the weakness of the church lies not in Christian arguments, but in the Christian lives, unquote. Earlier this week, I was listening to a radio program, and a guy was talking about presidential candidates, and one of the the people on the radio was talking to the talk show host, and he basically said, I could never vote for a person who believes that evolution is false. And I wanted to jump through the radio and just slap him. (laughs) Because God knew I was... I was teaching this passage and how absolutely positively broken I am because I fail so often to practice what I preach. To say, Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that people apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from the the revelation of the Bible, it makes perfect sense to me that they're not going to believe the Bible. It makes perfect sense to me that there are literally millions of people out there that when they read the opening verse of the Bible where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they don't believe it. But what they don't necessarily and what they haven't necessarily thought through is that they do believe something. And that just like they can criticize the Christian for believing that a real God created the heavens and the earth, the Christian can, with gentleness and respect, say, well then, how did did nothing become something? I'm open. Give me your best shot. Tell me how you think it happened. How did something become organic? And how did organic material become life? And how did life have consciousness? And how does consciousness give you the ability to reflect on what it is that you're thinking about right at this very moment when you say evolution is not true or evolution is true? How do you spot the dogs from the hogs? Question. Do you think it's going to take discernment? Is it going to require spiritual perception? Is it going to require the mind of God and the heart of Jesus? By the way, the next few verses in verses 7 through 11, Jesus is going to talk about prayer again. And the need for wisdom in prayer. And then he's going to give us the golden rule in verse 12. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's in the context of what you just read. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This verse, verse 6, proves that Jesus does not intend to prohibit all judgment. But that you're called to judge By God's standards. Not everyone embraces God's standards. Not everyone believes Christ's commands. I'm grateful for Robert Bowman in his book Orthodoxy and Heresy. Sadly out of print. In chapter 3. He outlines the judgments to avoid. We've just talked about them. Number one hypocritical judgments. Number two, unjust judgments. Number three, presumptuous judgments. Those are the ones you have to stay away from. So what are the judgments we embrace? Number one, we judge truth from error and right from wrong. The moment that you say something is true and something is false, are you being judgmental? I don't think so. If green means go and red means stop, is the person judgmental who runs the red light? I don't think so. We judge unrepentant sinners in the church. Do you want to know why? Because the Bible insists that we do. Because the Bible insists that we judge unrepentant sinners in the church, it also insists that we not judge 
the unrepentant sinner outside of the church. It's not your job. And it's not my job. And the Bible says we're to judge false teachers or teachers of false versions of Christianity. We can't ignore the literally dozens and dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible that constantly invite us to judge between right and wrong, good and evil, sinners in the church, false teachers of Christianity. The local church has to judge serious sins in the local church and take appropriate action according to Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Believers are to judge the teaching of local leaders and preachers and teachers and they're to be held to a strict standard. Teachers must not preach or teach those things that are contrary to sound doctrine according to the Bible. Those in the church must judge men and their qualifications to occupy the role of the office that they find themselves in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're commanded to discern which people are divisive, unruly, faint-hearted, and weak, and treat them appropriately. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always, 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 Always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. I'm amazed at how many people are willing to ignore truth or despise truth or reject truth. And they'll read Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And so they use that scripture to draw a conclusion That they can never, ever say, hey, guess what? That's right. And that's wrong. That's good. And that's evil. History is littered with people who were grossly underestimated or overestimated. You know, when I was preparing this passage, I wrote down, judging people is easy. Loving people people is hard. Tweet that. Judging people is easy. Loving people is hard. In 1933, Dorothy Thompson wrote in her diary after meeting Adolf Hitler, quote, that formless, almost faceless man will never become the dictator of Germany. Boy, was she wrong. He was honestly or dishonestly, depending on how you view history, elected chancellor of Germany. He didn't make himself chancellor. He was voted in. The Chicago Times in 1865 evaluating Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Do you know what they wrote? Quote, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States, unquote. Nobody reads the Times. Everybody remembers Lincoln. Thomas Edison was sent home from school with a note from his teacher. You know what the note read? This boy's too stupid to learn. No wonder the brother of Jesus, James, warned, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we're going to incur the stricter judgment. The person who teaches receives a stricter judgment. You want to know why? Because information and influence matter. The person who judges has to be willing to be judged. And no one is above criticism. You know, years ago, a Santa Fe train was traveling through Oklahoma. In one of the coaches, a woman was desperately trying to quiet a baby so that it would stop crying. And the baby was annoying several passengers. And finally, one person couldn't take it any longer and said, Can't you just keep that baby quiet? He looked at the woman and he noticed that she was wearing a dress that indicated that she'd just come from a funeral. And the woman said gently, 
I'm doing my best. The baby's not mine. Well, where's the baby's mother? The man barked in her coffin, sir, in the baggage car in front of us. And the steely eyes of the fellow welled up with tears. And he took the baby in his arms and he kissed it. And he walked up and down the aisle trying to comfort the baby. We often pretend godlike knowledge and we demand godlike justice and ignore godlike compassion. No wonder Paul wrote, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he either stands or falls. In the end, Jesus will make exactly the right choice about me and about you. Judge? Yeah, right from wrong, good from evil, unrepentant sinners in the church, false teachers, false versions of Christianity. Judge? Not superficially, not hypocritically. Not presumptuously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of instruction. And Lord, I pray for myself most of all. I have a powerful urge, a desire, Lord, to sometimes judge without all the facts. To judge not knowing the truth. To judge apart from mercy and compassion. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in my heart. Lord, I pray that you would take the beam and remove it from my eye. And whatever comfort, whatever encouragement, whatever hope that we can extend to each other, that we can do it knowing, knowing, knowing that in the end, Lord, you know the truth. And so, Father, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.